Amen. Thank you, Joyce. Thanks, John. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you today? It is good to see you. My name is Arnold. I'm the high school pastor here, and uh, I'm delighted that you guys are here with me today to open up God's Word, and thank you for joining us online as well. Um, welcome on this, this Super Bowl Sunday, huh? Super Bowl Sunday. You guys could be at home cooking weenies, but you're here, so, so thank you guys. Um, do, do we have any Chief fans in the, in the house? Maybe a couple, a couple? How about more Tom Brady fans? I don't want, I mean, I, I, Tom Brady fans. I don't know many Buck fans, but Tom Brady fans, I know plenty of those. Yeah. How many, I don't really care. I couldn't care less. Yeah, yeah. Something weird happened this year in sports. Um, we all kind of learned that we could get by with a little less sports in our life. And uh, so that's, that's kind of a blessing. But I do know that I will be, uh, that, you know, at my family's, with my family eating some food. And I'm looking forward to that after, after we get done here. But uh, there will probably be a game on, I, I imagine. But I'll, I'll be more interested in the food. But, uh, but yeah, it's good to be here. Sp- uh, you know, speaking of sports um, and strenuous activity, I want to I ask you uh, a question this morning to begin with. Um, can you think of a time uh, when you were very, very thirsty? Like, you know, some of you are like, I'm actually kind of thirsty now. <laughs> yeah, I want to tell you a story about when I was very, very thirsty. Um, it was a long time ago. I was in fifth grade, but I remember it so vividly. My senses were just so heightened um, to this thirst that I had. So essentially, I went uh, with a church group of about 20 or 30 boys and a, and a handful of adult leaders out to the superstitions um, in Arizona, and we went on a hike. It was supposed to be a two-and-a-half-hour hike, uh, but that is not what happened. It was way longer than that because... Uh, the leaders actually got us lost in, in the mountains. We lost the trail at some point. We couldn't find where we were going. And I began to, you know, as the, you know, we started mid-morning, so it's already kind of sunny, you know. We're sipping on that water bottle that we got, and we're like, okay, we're good. But eventually the water began to ran, run out. You know, there's one boy over here, hey, let me get, let me get a sip of yours, you know. Another boy over here, hey, uh, can I have a drink of your water, you know? And at first the leaders were like, hey, hey no, no sharing, we're, you know, no sharing. But as things moved on in the afternoon, all those prohibitions went away. It was survival of the fittest. It was like, you know, at, at one point, you know, I, I'll just call them some of the more rowdier boys of the group, right? They, they kind of half circle surround me and, and they're like, hey, hey, bro, give us a sip. And I'm like, Firstly, I've seen your sips, and I'm not going to give you a sip of mine, you know. But if you know anything about, you know, sort of jock pressuring, and there's nothing against jocks. My, you know, my, my brothers are jocks, all three of them. Uh, nothing against jocks, but there's this sort of pressuring that happens where, like, they make you to feel like you're a spaz if you don't give them a drink, right? So, anyways, in this case, I held strong because... Uh, earlier in that day before the hike, I had proven that I was the fastest kid among 30. Um, and so I had some clout. So I held on to that water bottle 
as tight as I could and I saved my water. But eventually even my water was gone. And so we're walking and there is no water anywhere. And tempers start to flare up among the kids and even among the adults. It gets dusty. We're in this space where it's like there's dust in the air because we're not on a really good path. We're tired. And at one point, the, group, you know, the, the leaders sit us down in the shade and they say, rest. And I, and I see them kind of go over in this group and they've got sort of like hushed, hushed tones, right? And they're talking and, and you can tell that they're starting to panic. There's stress in their eyes. And we walk along and we're so thirsty. Eventually, the rowdiness, the anger stops and we're just trudging along. And we eventually find this poor, recently dead horse on the trail. And normally that would be something that you, you know, would get some sticks and poke at or do something and marvel at. But we were just like, oh my God, did this horse die from thirst? <laughs> like we're going to die from thirst. And we just, we just move along. And eventually, by God's grace and provision, we made it back to the vehicles. But there was no water at the vehicles. We had to wait. We had to drive back to the church. And so while, we, while I'm in the church, it feels like I'm in, I was like, I was thirsty out there. I thought I couldn't be thirstier. But when I'm driving, I'm even more thirsty at the anticipation that there's, there's water coming. All I can think about is water water. And I get into this frenzy, right? I'm not thinking about anybody else. In fact, there's one point where I'm like, I'm the fastest kid here. And when I get out of here, I I don't care about anybody. I'm going straight for that drinking fountain. I don't care. And I was the fastest and I did get there first. And when I got that drink of water, it was the greatest moment of my life. It was the greatest moment of my life. Have you ever in your life felt that thirsty? Now let me ask you another question. Have you ever in your life felt that thirsty in your soul? Let's pray and then we're gonna get into God's word this morning. Father, may we be refreshed and satisfied by your word this morning. Amen, amen. All right, so let's get into today's passage. Um, It's such a wonderful passage. I feel blessed to be able to come up here and talk about it with you guys. Let me give us a little bit of context where we're at. So we're in the, in the book of John chapter 7. And uh, as Seth taught last week, John chapter 7 takes place during a very important uh, Jewish festival called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, uh, as you'll sometimes hear it called. And it was a time when the Jews would go to Jerusalem, the, the capital city, and celebrate this week-long festival where they would live and they would sort of make these makeshift huts and uh, tents that they would live in during the time and just celebrate God's provision for them and commemorate the time when they were in the wilderness and without a home 
and sort of camping in the, in, in the desert for years and years and years. And so it was, a, it was a time to remember God's provision during that time. And it just so happened to fall during the end of the, at the end of the harvest when things are feeling plentiful. So this is a real celebratory time. It's a time, I think the closest thing that we have to it, because we don't have week-long celebrations in America, but I think the, the closest that we get to it is like this idea of New Year's, where it's the end of the year, right? And you look back at what God has provided and you look forward to a new year, right? So it's, it's a very festive time. Well, during this time, when, you know, Jesus should have been celebrating, he was actually on the radar of the Pharisees and their religious leaders of that time, and not for good reason. Because these religious leaders, they were people who were also municipal leaders, and they had governmental rights. And they did not like the impact that Jesus was having in the community, in the society, because he challenged them by pointing out their hypocrisy, the hypocrisy in their system. And he challenged the idea that they had God as their champion, that they had God that they could use for their own purpose, agenda, their own category. And Jesus challenges that. And so he's in the hot seat. And so he enters this festival midweek privately. And he begins teaching, and people begin to notice him, and they wonder, why aren't the authorities approaching Jesus? We'll read today that God's timing for Jesus to be taken into, to be arrested had not come yet. So God was providing here and allowing it so that Jesus did not get arrested. But also, what we're going to see today is that it was very difficult to put Jesus into any category. You see, they were having all of these responses. Some were saying he's a good teacher. Some were saying he's leading people astray. Some thought he might even be this, messi- this Messiah that was sort of prophesied in their religion about, and he would come and he would bring salvation, he would deliver them from foreign rule, in this case Rome. Some people thought he might even be the Messiah. And so there's all these things flying around about who Jesus is, but they can't fit him into a category. They can't figure him out. They don't know what to do with him. And what's fascinating for us today in this room is that we experience that same thing. Jesus doesn't fit our categories. It's, think about the places where you work and live. Jesus is not easily put into a category. We just don't know what to do with him. There's widespread confusion about him. And that's where our passage begins. So I want to turn our attention to verse 25 and read along with me. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and yet they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So let's stop right here. The Jews are looking to the authorities. Why aren't they doing anything about this guy? Do they maybe think he's the Messiah? 
And in the absence of getting this cue from the authorities, they make up their own mind. They start talking among themselves. But, but we know where this man's from. And we know, we know that when the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he comes from. So here, Jesus is having an impact. He cannot be ignored. In fact, our decision, their decision, our decision about who Jesus is has eternal consequence. But he is a force to be reckoned with. That's something they realize. But then they have to sort of come up with this trump card that gets them out of belief. And what's that trump card? Oh, we know that when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he comes from. But we know where Jesus comes from. You can hear it in his Nazarene accent. I mean, and so therefore, case closed, he cannot be the Messiah. They've made their decision, right? Where did they get this idea that we wouldn't know where the Messiah comes from? Where? Here's the, here's the baffling thing. Scholars and historians don't know where this idea arose in Israel that you wouldn't know where the Messiah is coming from because it is not directly affirmed in scripture. There's not a verse where we can say, oh yes, we will not know where the Messiah has come from. And so there are verses that talk about the mystery of the Messiah's coming. And somehow over time, this became a tradition. And so these Jews are appealing to tradition, things that they know, in the face of what they are seeing from Jesus and experiencing from him. And in the face of scripture itself. Look at, look at Micah 5.2. This is a direct prophecy. But you, O Bethlehem, o Ephrathah, who are, you, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah? From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He's going to come from Bethlehem, the prophecy says. He's going to come. This is direct. And yet, they're going to take this tradition and believe it. It's their get out of belief trump card. All right? Now, I find this fascinating. Fascinating for us. When I consider my own faith journey, and when I consider the faith journey of many people whom I love and care about and talk, talk about faith with. Because we always have this way of sort of, I see Jesus doing something. I feel him doing something. I see something remarkable about him. But we know, and we might say things, we might say things like this. I felt my heart soften towards Jesus, but we know that virgins don't have babies, right? We might say something like, I was almost convinced of the trustworthiness of Jesus. But, you know, modern textual criticism kind of sheds doubt on the book. And you know what? It's been translated over and over, and so things are kind of lost. We might say things like this. I was almost convinced of the love of Jesus, but he came from a patriarchal system, and he kind of held some outdated views of sexuality and gender that I'm just kind of not on board with. I sense Jesus working in my life. But if we know that he is real, then children wouldn't get molested. Things like, th things like this would not hap have happened to me. 
My life wouldn't be so miserable. We know this. I caught a glimpse of hope in Jesus, but we know how the real world works. We know how the real world works. It can't be this simple. But it's not just for people on the borders of belief, right? We who have tasted the satisfying Jesus, we still are tempted to have this get out of belief card. We might say things like this. I feel Jesus calling me into greater intimacy with him, but we know that one's sex life is a complex and private matter. I feel Jesus calling me to a heart of compassion toward a wicked and immoral world. But we know that we are in the end times and we're in a battle against apostasy. I feel Jesus calling me out of anger and bitterness, but we know that self-will and self-expression is the only true way for me to be healed of my trauma. I feel Jesus convicting my greedy heart, but we know that retirement is built this way. You see, we all have felt this tug and we all have a way of soothing that longing, that ache that Jesus sparks in us. We have a way out. We have a way of dismissing it. Um, but Jesus, he's so inc- he is so incredible. I want us to read his response to this, this Jew, the Jewish way of thinking at this time of why he couldn't be the Messiah. And I just want to talk about it real quick. This is so classic Jesus. I love it so much. Um, this is what he says. Join me in verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Jesus here does not get into an elite theological debate with the Jews over this matter, he meets them where they're at. He even says, yes, you do know where I come from. And then he gives them an ironic twist because they don't know where he comes from. They indeed don't know where he comes from because where does he ultimately come from? He comes from the Father. And so Jesus meets these people and their arguments, their excuses. He meets them at their excuses. And he tells them, you don't know where I'm from, really. So what you're saying is true. You see, he, he sort of judo moves them there. And he, and he shows them, he, he tells them ultimately this. You don't know where I'm from, because I'm from the Father, and you do not know the Father. 
I would invite you, I would invite you to bring your excuses to Jesus, bring them to him, and watch what he does with them. Bring your excuses and watch what he does with them. It's abs- he'll do the same thing he did here. It's absolutely amazing. Now, his way is convicting. His way is authoritative. His way will get under our skin. But his way is also invitational. It invites. Let's read this next chunk of scripture here. Starting in... Uh, Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. You see, Jesus, he's causing a stir. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? that we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. The religious authorities send people to arrest Jesus, but they become arrested by his teaching. You see, Jesus, even in his rebuke, is invitational. You can almost see them, they're like, what, what is he saying? Now, have you ever talked to a, a crazy person? Have you ever talked to a crazy person? Um, when you talk to them, you're not like, what does he mean by that? You're just like, That's, that guy's crazy, right? That is not what's happening here. Jesus is so authoritative, so winsome that he's got the people that have come to arrest him asking questions. And he leaves it in this place of tension. They're like, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? It's driving me crazy. You see, Jesus is invitational even to his enemies. But Jesus has a particular audience in mind. He's got a particular group of people in mind. And we're going to read about it in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus hasn't been arrested yet, has he? They haven't figured him out. They don't know what to do with him. But he's watching the festivities on this last day, in which they're pouring out water to commemorate the time when they were in the wilderness and water came from the rock. And Jesus sees this water, this water without which we cannot survive. The thing we need, the building block of all life. And he says, if any of you are thirsty, come and drink. 
Now many people are upset when Jesus doesn't say, I am God, the second person of the Trinity. But what Jesus says here is amazing. Do any of you want anyone who is thirsty to come to you? Do you want that burden? I can't even give my own self rivers of living water. I can't even make the good life for my own self. I don't want anyone believing in me for that. And Jesus takes this on. Only God can do that. And then he says, you know what? It's not just you that's going to be quenched, but out of you will flow rivers of living water. It's going to be abundant. It's going to spill out of you. You will be changed. Are any of you in here thirsty? Jesus has a particular invitation for you. He's got a particular place of compassion for you. You are his audience. Those of you, those of us, who are thirsty this morning, who have seen how life plays out and the illusion that anything in this world can satisfy us has been shattered. If any of you have been taken into the sun and the heat and the elements by a, by a faulty guide, and you're wandering around and it's dusty and you don't have any water and you're, you're just like, if I could just get a drink. To those of you who are low in spirit, you're like, I don't, I don't have anything. I don't have my intellect. I don't have my my money, I don't, there's nothing, none of this matters, I'm, I'm thirsty, I'm just thirsty. All I want is a drink. To, the, to you, Jesus says, come to me. Believe what I say about myself, believe that I am able to save you, that I am able to satisfy. Believe what I say about you. that I desire to be with you. Jesus says, come and drink. Are you thirsty this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Jesus. How marvelous he is. We thank you that he is the only one who truly satisfies. God, may we see our thirst this morning, not by intellectual assent, but by simply saying, oh, I realize I'm thirsty. And Lord, I pray that those who come to you would be satisfied. Amen.